Uh, We continue in our sermon series in the book of Acts. So let's have God's word open us up to Acts. We are in the fourth chapter, Acts chapter 4, and we will begin the reading of God's word in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, starting on verse 32, and we're going to take this into chapter 5, verse 11, but it'll be a smooth transition, so we can stay together. And when you're there, let's rise for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now this is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit And to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at at his feet and breathed her last. While the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay. Good morning, church. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, before we hear the preaching of God's word. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you so much that as we heard our brother Andy share, uh, you are an inviting God, you are a welcoming God, and you draw near to those who are low. Father, it is our confession this morning that we want to come as we are and be met 
by a gracious God. So would you do so as we listen now to your word. Help us that through it and in it we would find truth. We would find grace. We would find the cross. And that would be enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So far in Acts, a lot has happened in a very short amount of time. Chapter 1, Jesus ascends. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. Chapter 3, signs and wonders are being done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, persecution now comes upon the church. In the midst of all of this, for all that's going on, we find two things that are constant. No matter what happens in Acts, two things that are constantly going on. The first, the gospel is being proclaimed. It's spreading rapidly and accepted more widely. And second, a gospel community is being formed. There is a journalist by the name of Greg Sadel who a few years ago studied why some movements fail and some movements succeed. Why is it that some movements like Occupy Wall Street fail while other movements go on to succeed? Sadel observes that the first aspect of a successful movement is that it creates small groups that are loosely connected, united by a shared purpose. Successful movements create small groups loosely connected, united by a shared purpose. And conversely, movements that fall apart, movements that fail, they fail because these communities are not created. Either it's too centralized, too structured, or these communities of like-minded people are not created. What do we find in Acts? We find the gospel is going out and churches are being formed. There's a gospel movement leading to gospel community. Now today's passage gives us a closer look into the life of this community. And I just want to go through this passage together as we examine what the church looked like, what it looked like in Acts. Verse 32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. When we read this verse, I think our initial response is to think, this is impossible. How can the full number of believers, at this point, there's probably over 10,000 believers, right? How can over 10,000 believers be of one heart and one soul? I mean, come on. After church, when we're outside fellowshipping, there's probably four or five people interested in going to lunch afterwards, and we can't even decide where we're going to go to for lunch. 
How can these, this grand amount of people, 10,000 people, be of one heart and one soul? How can they share their possessions, not consider the things that they have as their own, but belonging to each other, and as it says in verse 32, how can they have everything in common? That's because Christians in the early church, they saw their salvation as being the primary way in which they viewed themselves and they viewed each other. Let me repeat that. It's because Christians saw their salvation as being the primary way in which they viewed themselves and viewed one another. So when asked the question, who am I? They would answer, who am I? I'm a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Who is he? He is a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Who is she? The same. A sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus. You know, if someone asks you, who are you? Our normal way of responding is by saying something unique, something distinctive. We might start by saying our name, right? Our name is a unique identifier. Then we might say, you know, what we do for our living. Or we might talk about our major, what we studied. We might talk about our hobby or our our background. When asked the question, who are you? We usually respond by saying something that describes us as a unique individual, don't we? No one says, who am I? I'm a homo sapien, right? No one says something general like that. No, you identify yourself with something that makes you uniquely you. You know, a few weeks ago, I was surfing the web and visiting other churches' websites because that's what pastors do when they search the web. They look at other church websites. And I stumbled upon this bio uh, by this one pastor. He's a pastor at a church called ELMC. And I found it to be humorous and pretentious. This is what it says. Stephen is not your average second-generation Korean-American pastor. He was born and raised in the projects of Brooklyn, New York. He has a background in air traffic control, holds a degree in divinity, is writing his Ph.D. dissertation in biblical hermeneutics, and is an ordained minister in the KAPC. Actually, the only thing normal about him is his wife, Cohen Grace, and sometimes his three boys, Caleb, Oliver, and Brooklyn. You know, the whole purpose of this bio that I wrote up is to state how unique I am. And that's what we're all trained to do, aren't we? That's what we're all inclined to do, right? We're inclined and we're taught to find your identity Find my identity in what makes me uniquely me. But you know, Christians in the early church emphasized not that which was unique, but that which was primary. 
That's what they found their identity in. The most important thing, not the most distinctive thing, but the most important thing, and that was a shared experience, salvation. A shared experience among all new believers. You see, because the church, everyone in the church, because they found their identity in the gospel, they believed they had everything in common with each other. Consider for a moment, right, this gospel invitation. What is the invitation? The invitation is, come as you are. Everyone with different backgrounds, experiences, personalities, ethnicities, it doesn't matter. Everyone, anyone, come. That's the gospel invitation, right? But when you do, what happens? You start at the same place. Everyone starts at the same place, the foot of the cross. No one gets a head start, but everyone starts there. No matter how unique you are, no matter how you lived, no matter how moral you are, no matter how much you have or how little you have, the gospel tells us that we are all the same. We start in the same spot. And what is there? And what is that? What does it tell us? That we are all sinners. All sinners in need of salvation. But it doesn't end there. Because for all who believe, for all who believe in the name of Jesus, God, he gives to us all the right, the equal right to become his children. It's not some become children and some become servants, but to all who receive him, they all equally receive the right of sonship. So the gospel tells us you're not worse and you're not better than your fellow believer. The gospel tells us you are equally a sinner, you are equally a saint now in Jesus, you are equally saved, and you are equal inheritors. You possess the kingdom as much as the next Christian. You possess the kingdom as much as even Christ, our Savior. As you hear me say often, the cross of Jesus is the great equalizer. It levels the plane for everyone because the cross tells us we are all sinners and through the work of Jesus, we all become saints. If you've ever shared a powerful experience with someone, if you share a very powerful experience with someone, no matter how different you are, no matter how different you are from that person, that powerful experience has the ability to unite people. Why? Because that experience starts to shape both of your identities. Consider soldiers in a battle at war. They can be soldiers from different parts of the world with different backgrounds and experiences, but once they're on the battlefield and once they see blood, that powerful experience is enough 
to unite them. That experience starts to shape their identities together. And they begin to have commonalities. I think I shared with this congregation um, a few years ago, but one of the shared experiences uh, that we've had, that I've had growing up was uh, 9-11. That was a shared experience um, growing up in New York. People who were actually there, people who were actually saved, people who actually got out. There were communities that were formed, and no matter how different they were, they might have been a high executive to a janitor in the building, but that shared experience was powerful enough to shape their identities where they actually had a lot more in common. The church in Acts, believe it or not, was extremely diverse, probably more diverse than the church today. The church in Acts was made up of people of different ethnicities, different social statuses, different backgrounds. But to them, that was all secondary. It was secondary because they had all gone to the foot of the cross and saw that they equally needed the blood of Jesus for their salvation. That experience was powerful enough to shape their identities. And as they looked upon their fellow believers, they saw someone Not that they saw someone who wasn't different from them, but they saw someone who was the same. You know, a a, uh, common sentiment in the church today, um, I think is the very opposite of what this verse is saying, right? Christians, we struggle feeling united to other Christians. And don't we often think and say, you know, I have nothing in common with other members of the church. Verse 32 says, the believers had everything in common. But don't we often think and say, I have nothing in common. Hey church, if I can tell you, if I had one dollar for every time I heard that, I have nothing in common with the people of the church. If I had one dollar for every single time I heard that, I mean, I would be able to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, right? I mean, that's how much money I would have. I, would, I hear that so often. I have nothing in common. You know, if we think and say that, it's because we are finding our identity not in the shared experience of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but we're finding our identities in our lame hobbies, in our quirky personalities, in our stubborn opinions. When you say, I have nothing in common, it's because we are measuring people up according to our distinctiveness. I mean, if I were to ask you right now, right, you know, look across you, and what do you have in common with the person that's sitting next to you? What would you say? What do you see? Do you start with individual traits that make you distinct and unique and you measure that person up to see if he or she has any semblance of that? Or do you see that which is primary? The powerful identity shaping experience of salvation.
See, this, as we understand how the church viewed themselves and each other, this helps us to understand everything that followed, right? If you look at verse 33, this is what it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So we find here that week in and week out, in fact, daily as the church gathered, what did they do? They heard the preaching of God's word, And in that, they found their collective identities. You see, it was through the preaching of God's word, which became a common bond that united them. The word became the corporate manifesto for the church. Hearing of the resurrection was a reminder that they were called to the same hope together. See, I think this is radically different from how we approach the word of God today. I mean, don't we view the Word of God primarily for personal sanctification and satisfaction, right? When we hear and study the Word of God, the question that we always ask is, does it apply to my situation? Is it relevant to me? Well, the early church was quite different. They saw the word as something to be heard and learned in the context of community. As they listened to it in the context of community with one another, it was for them a way in which the church lifted their eyes up, remembered the hope that they had, and moved forward together as a body. And so, brothers, sisters, I mean, as a practical reminder, please, when you listen to the preaching of God's word, when you study the word in the context of community groups, please do not solely think about yourself. Please do not think about yourself only. I know sometimes when the pastor mentions sin, when the preacher talks about sin, that's when we, we think about others, right? We're like, oh yeah, that's that guy <laughs> or this individual. And when we hear things of hope and faith and forgiveness, it's more on a personal level for us. But the challenge and the encouragement for us is as we study the word of God together, please listen to it in the context of community. Pray not just for personal conviction, but pray for corporate conviction. Pray not for personal renewal, but pray for church revival. See, as they met and listened to the word of God, as they heard of the resurrection hope that they had, they were reminded, oh my goodness, this individual who I'm sitting next to, I'm going to be with that person forever in heaven. And what does that do? That inevitably instills a spirit of community, a spirit of unity. Friends, we are not just individuals here, you know, and we're not individuals at, at, at some buffet restaurant trying to fight our way and get what we want, right? Waiting for the waitress to finally bring out, you know, the, the king crab where we can all just jump onto it. We're not trying to fend for ourselves, fighting for ourselves, and scrap for ourselves, but we're at the dinner table together, enjoying communal food, listening to the word of God together, 
in the context of the church. In fact, the, there was no personal studying of the word in the early church. I mean, they weren't blessed with individual Bibles. They all had just a few scrolls that they had to come to the church to study and to listen to together. Many of these individuals, yes, they committed it to memory, but they gathered for the studying of God's word. And that influenced greatly how they viewed one another, how they listened to the preaching, how they studied the word. That leads to verses 34 to 35. This is what it says. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, you know, when we read these verses, we think, how is this possible? How is it that they can sell their possessions, give to one another, distribute, and not consider what they had to be their own? How is this possible? Well, it's because they were a gospel community. You know, within the word community is the word communion. And the word communion means to share, to partake, to exchange. And so when the church gathered as a community, what did they share? Well, they didn't just share their prayer requests. They didn't just share how their week was. They didn't just share their morning devotionals. But they shared themselves. They shared their possessions. They shared what they had. Church, as a challenge, the more and more we let go of individualism, the more and more we forsake individualism, individual preferences, individual tastes, individual comforts, including individual possessions, the more and more a gospel community is formed. See, we find the early church wasn't just about spreading the gospel, but they were about living the gospel. They sell their possessions, they give to those in need. They, they talk the talk, and they walk the walk. Now, I think an interesting question to ask is this. Where did they get this idea? Where did, why did they all of a sudden start selling their belongings, start giving and sharing? Where did this all come from? Well, they got it from Scripture. If you look at Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 8, this is what it says. This is the Lord speaking God. He says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, if in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, I want you to think about this, right? The church, right? As more and more people are coming to faith, as they're committing themselves, they're devoting themselves to what the apostles teaching, uh, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? As they're studying the word of God day in and day out, they stumbled upon Deuteronomy 15. And they read this passage. 
And immediately their thoughts weren't, oh, you know what? This is irrelevant. They don't think, you know what? This was backwards. This is impossible. We can't do this. Instead, how does the church respond? With innocence and with a genuine heart. They say, you know what? This is the Lord speaking. And they trust him through obedience. Deuteronomy 15.10 says this, You shall give to him freely as your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. You see, the believers, they were partaking of this because they trusted in the word of God. They believed that what the Lord said was true, that they can hold on to these things, that they can live according to these things, and that God will fulfill his promises. The apostles, in committing themselves to, or or the church committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, it wasn't just about soaking in this knowledge, learning and listening, but it was about living this out among the communities. It was the community being shaped by the word of God, the church responding in obedience to God's word. Finally, as we go down, uh, this section in Acts ends with two examples, two specific examples uh, with this kind of giving and living. The first example is by a man named Barnabas, and the second example is by a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I know that uh, ending a sermon with the story of Ananias and Sapphira is probably not the best thing to do, but let me try to land this as best as possible, because I think it does tie into everything that we've talked about regarding the community, the gospel community. Um, in verse uh, 36, it tells us that there was a man named Barnabas, who Joseph, who uh, was called Barnabas. He sells his property, and he brings it at the apostles' feet to give those in need. Right? This is a specific example of this gospel living. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they are a couple, and they see this, and they too want to participate. So what do they do? They sell their land. But they agree among themselves, among the couple, to only give half. They bring this half with the pretense that it's the whole amount. They pretend as though they were inspired by Barnabas' act, and they're doing the exact same thing. Now, Peter confronts them. He asks, is this everything? They say, yes. One by one, first the husband, then the wife. And Peter responds in a very harsh way. He says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you lying to God? And in utter shock and amazement, these people fall dead. They die. 
Usually, right, um, you know, as the, gos- as, as the church is practicing this gospel living, gospel community, it's usually proceeds that are being carried in and out. It's usually food and needs that are being carried in and out, right? But in this case, in Acts 5, it's two corpses being carried out. I think there are a lot of questions about this passage. And when I first became a Christian, this was one of the most uncomfortable passages. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, I want to be clear that first, these people, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they were judged not because of their generosity or lack thereof, but they were judged because of their hypocrisy. You see, look at what Peter says. He says, listen, this land was yours. When you sold it, the money was yours. You didn't have to give it. You didn't have to bring it. It's yours. But why was he judged? Why was this couple judged? Because of their hypocrisy. Because they pretended like they were doing what Barnabas was doing. You see, you can imagine this rich couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They, were, they saw the gospel movement from the outside. They saw that it was sensational and it produced an ideal community. And you can imagine this rich couple, they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be a part of it. And so what do they do? Well, they come up with this plan where they'll sell their possessions and they'll say that it's all of it, when in fact it's only half. See, this couple seems to be a couple who's on the outside of this community, wanting to be a part of the community, yet they're not fully convinced of its mission or its message. Now, that's okay. That's okay. They could have simply come to the apostles and said, here, this is only half. I'm not fully confident. They could have said, you know what? We're interested in what this movement is about, but we're not sure if we can buy in. They could have said that, and it would have been okay. But what did they do? What did they decide to do instead? They decided, you know what? We are going to appear or give the appearance that we are convinced that we are bought into the gospel. And we're going to try to join the community in that way. You see, I think the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is that they try to join God's community, not in the way that God prescribed, where everyone starts at the cross, but they wanted to join the community with their money, their wealth, their prestige, and their power. They wanted to join the community with recognition and honor. They didn't want to start where everyone starts. Everyone is a sinner. Then they become a saint through Jesus. But how did they want to start? They wanted to start with recognition and honor. You know, you only need to read the Bible just for a little bit to know that one of the things that God abhors, one of the things that he hates is hypocrisy. Why? 
because hypocrisy is you're giving off the appearance that you're someone, that you're something or someone when in fact you're not. And hypocrisy is the act of fooling God. It's the act of lying to God so that you can appear in one way to others. That is not going to pass in a gospel community. One cannot join this movement with simply appearance. You know, I... um, You know, I think some of you might have this question, can this happen today? Or does this happen today? Well, you know, we might not have the Holy Spirit, but we have Zillow, right? We, we can see, you know, what things tell for. Like, oh, okay. You know, this doesn't happen today. Thank God it doesn't happen today. But I don't think that leaves us off the hook. I don't think it frees us from, I don't think that leaves us off the hook from hypocrisy. You know, I think we could say, you know what, this stuff doesn't happen today, thank God. But the same author, Luke, in his gospel, in 12.3, he writes this. On that day, as he's talking about the last day, there are going to be a lot of surprises. For Jesus says, what you have said in the dark will be heard in daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roof. What you have said in dark will be heard in daylight. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is a reminder to us that hypocrisy does not go unnoticed by the Lord. And the calling for us this morning is not for us to try to get into the community by way of action, by way of honor and recognition, but is to join the community by way of repentance and renewal. See, it's not that the Lord wants this or that from you. It's come as you are, not come as you think you are or come as you think, as you want others to think of you, but it's come as you are. Because only then can the gospel minister to your heart, changing you so that you can turn from your sins to the living God. Would you join me in prayer at this time?